Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Bless your heart. Well, it's, it's good to be back. Last weekend, first night, I took a weekend out, went down to Devon, had a lovely time down there. The weather was fabulous, and we just really felt like we were on holiday. And then I came back, and I went away on retreat. Um, I've started going down to the New Forest for my retreat, had a great time there. But I just, I, I need to confess something. It takes me time to settle into a retreat. You know, I get... I, I, get, I go to this apartment that some people in the church kindly lend me, and it's a beautiful place, and I, I sort of settle, settle down there, and you know, I get my Bible, and I get my notepad, and, and I get my pen, and then I get my highlighter, and then my, my green highlighter, and then my red highlighter, and I've wasted about 40 minutes. So I think, I must get into the Bible. So I start reading the Bible, and I think, I just need a coffee, so I just go and get a coffee. And I come back and I thought, oh, I've forgotten the Jaffa cakes. And it goes on like that. What is the matter with me? I mean, when I'm trying to still myself, it's just crazy. Does anybody else have the problem with distractions when you're, when you're trying to have a quiet time? What we call it. Anybody have that issue? One or two of us. Oh, thank goodness for that then. I'm in, in the right place. Well, anyway, I, I went there and... Uh, Spent uh, actually did get into it, and curiously enough, it may be curious to some of you, I, I felt prompted to just really go deeply into Job. And Job has a, a bit of a reputation. He's almost uh, out there in, in the secular world. When you, when you call or, or when you speak of Job, it's, it's about somebody who's really going through a terrible time. And I don't know why I felt drawn to it, but I did. And, and actually, I found it really interesting, really inspiring. And and what I loved about it was that it was the honesty and Job's real character. And at the end of it all, for those of you who don't know the story, basically terrible catastrophes take place in his life. And he has these friends that come and say to him, well, you must have sinned. You know, you know confess your sin and then, then God will bless you and it'll all be right again. And he says, do you know what, guys? Thanks for the advice, but I haven't sinned. And actually, by by the, the religious system of the day, he hadn't sinned. Uh, he, he really hadn't. He'd, he'd done everything right. He'd, he'd done the right uh, sacrifices at the right time. He'd even, when his kids had a bit of a party, he would even go and take sacrifices just in case they did something naughty while they were partying, you know. This guy was a really religious, a really righteous man. But as I read through the book, I realized that there was one thing that he wasn't doing. He was, he was not trusting solely in God to save him. And what I realized was happening in Job's life that he was self-righteous. His, his reason for saying, I have not sinned and God has done me a great wrong, I'm right and God is wrong, was that he was following a system whereby he believed he was right before God and man. And that brings me really to this Gospel in Life series because there's something we're trying to do here. Grace changes everything. We are trying to wheedle out from in our minds and our hearts and the way we do life this kind of element, this attitude 
whereby we begin to believe that it's because we're being a nice person and a good neighbor and we're being honest and we're showing up to church and we're serving on the kids' ministry and we're doing everything right, we begin to get a kind of vicarious pleasure, satisfaction, righteousness from the way we're doing life when in fact, none of that counts for everything in the court of the king. It's all about God giving us his love, his salvation, absolutely free and undeserved. And so it really bring, brought me, after all that journey through Job on retreat, I found myself coming back to this series and feeling excited about it. I thought Rich did a great job last week, by the way. If you missed that, check it out on the podcast. I listened to it myself and I thought he did a, a wonderful job. And what we're trying to do in the series, to give you an overview of the series, just to keep pressing the point home, is we're, we're looking at this whole business of grace, how grace changes everything. God's gift to us, undeserved, changes everything. And we're beginning the first two or three weeks by looking at our hearts. We're looking inward. What's going on inside? Where's the, where are the roadblocks? Where are the sticking points? Where are those things that are holding us back? Then we'll move on into the gospel in life in our community. How can we reach out into our community in this community, this faith community of which we're a part, but also beyond the, the four walls of this building into the community in which we live and love and serve, and then beyond that even, how do we be good news? How do we take this message of grace out into the world? I love the fact that we've got the Christians in Politics Roadshow here on, on Friday, and I, I've been told that we've got a baroness or two coming, so that'll be exciting. So I'm just, I just love that we do have this outward focus, but we're trying to get this thing from our head into our hearts, really deep down with us. So let me pray, and then we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you again for the opportunity of speaking of you. And Lord, may I say nothing presumptuous, may it all be of you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give me grace to speak clearly, eloquently, but above all, effectively. May that which I say be used by your Holy Spirit to go deep into our hearts. May there be revelation this morning, a deep and a profound understanding and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've called this talk a passion for Jesus. Now, it's not actually called that in the series. I know that some of our life groups are using the books, and I apologize for that. You will find that I will deal with the material that's set for this morning. So, so, uh, but I wanted to start really with this uh, a rather positive message and say, look, what we are talking about here, what we are aspiring to, what we are hoping to work in us is a passion for Jesus. I am by nature a passionate person. Uh, it, 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 it extends to all sorts of areas of my life. I get passionate about my hobbies. I, I get enthusiastic about this. And, uh, and my dear wife of nearly 40 years has had to put up with my enthusiasms and my passions and my hobbies and all the rest. It's just the way I am. But you know, we all have passions for some degree or another. One of the things my wife is passionate about, and I'm passionate about them too, is our grandchildren. On Friday, being our day off, we went down to the park and we had our grandchildren with us for a few moments. And, and one of the things that my, my daughter had promised my granddaughter, River, was a, a, a cake because she had done 
She had been set a little challenge throughout the week, and she'd been very good, and, and she was promised that we could go to the park and into the cafe and get a lovely cupcake thing. But well, we got to the, uh, the cafe, and Fliss sent me to the counter, and my granddaughter, River, wanted to go with me. And I said, come on, we'll choose a cupcake. And oh, horror of horrors, there were no cupcakes. Ooh, that is such a bad thing when you promise something to a kid and you can't deliver. So I said, sweetheart, there are no, no, cup, no cupcakes. And the little chin started to wiggle. And I thought, this could be, you know, she could have years of counseling because of this moment. You know, I need to be careful here. So I said, listen, I tell you what, you can have anything you want. It took a full 30 seconds for the penny and the implication of that to drop, you know. So I picked her up, and she's only three, just, th just over three, she's a little gem. And she looks at the counter and says, I'll have some of that. And there was this huge, great chocolate gatto. I mean, it was enormous. It was obscene, it was just enormous thing. She wanted a piece of that, and I said, really? Okay, we'll have a piece of that, I'll have a piece of that. So the, the lady's serving that, and then she said, and I'll have one of those. <laughs> uh, you know where this is going, it cost me a tenner, ten bloody quid. I went back, I looked shell-shocked, and they said, what's the matter with you? I said, I've just blown ten quid on flipping stuff at the cafe. Anyway, the end of the story is, the point of me telling you the story is that River has a, a lo she loves chocolate, and she was eating this gatto, and Fliss cut it up, and she was hungry. But I've never seen her. She was stuffing this gatto into her face. It was all over the place. You know, there was there was a disaster area. You know, chocolate everywhere. And Fliss couldn't believe, neither could I, that she was going to eat this whole thing. And so Fliss had cut it into four pieces, and there was one little quadrant left. And so Fliss leaned across, and she she took that, and she started to eat that. And River went. <laughs> You're eating my cake! <laughs> and she was. It's not often that I get, I, I get my, uh, an edge on Fliss. And I, you know, and I said, Fliss, no. You're eating your granddaughter's cake. Milked it, man, I milked it. She has a passion for chocolate. And actually, I have a responsibility for that because when she was six months old, I was eating a chocolate in our lounge, and she was propped up on the sofa beside me, and I got a little bit of a piece of this chocolate, and I put it on my finger, and I just put it on her bottom lip, and she'd never had chocolate before. And, and she stuck her little tongue out, and sort of, kind of pulled, screwed up her face, and then there was an epiphany. <laughs> it was revelation. The heavens opened and the angels sung. And she has loved chocolate ever, ever since. She is passionate about chocolate. Well, you may have passions in your life. You know, you may be passionate about your partner. Henry, bless his heart, little secret here, our worship leader this morning, he's getting married next Saturday. And he and Deborah, quite rightly, are passionate about each other. And it's just a delight to see. We can't wait to go to that, that wedding. But we all have passions. We all have these moments. And the, the, the scripture speaks of the kingdom of God in passionate terms. It's not dry and dusty and traditional and religious. It's, it's an affair of the heart. It's the most outrageous love affair. 
It has implications in our life. It's not just fizzy and fuzzy and wooly and wishy-washy. But there is a heart passion in all of this. And actually, in one of those delightful little parables, just a verse or two, some of Jesus' teaching parables are long and involved and, and paint great pictures. A, a sower went out to sow, da di da di da But some of them are almost like throwaway lines, but they somehow capture something. Let's just look at one. I read it earlier on, Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven, this is about. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, and when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for the fine pearls, and when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Can you hear the passion in that? The guy, the merchant, the, 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 the estate agent, whoever, they, they realize that there is something there of great value, of great worth. And they are prepared to sell everything, to, to risk everything, to get rid of everything just so that they might have this one item. Interestingly enough, in the first of those two, the treasure hidden in a field, the man doesn't even get to own the treasure as such. All he gets to do is get to own the place where the treasure is. But that's enough. He sells everything he has. He'll go to any length. He'll do whatever it takes to gain that treasure. Does that sound like passion to you? Does that sound like somebody is, is just kind of fixated on this thing? You know, it's an extraordinary thing, but Jesus can be our magnificent obsession. Our magnificent obsession. But you know, that may not be where you're at at the moment. It may be, and I, I thank God for those of you who are in that place of excitement and energy, and we, we, we all need to be in that place. But, but there are also difficult times, aren't there? Let's be honest. I, you know, I've been a Christian a while now, and there are seasons where I don't feel very passionate, where it is difficult to do my quiet time, that I'm e where I'm easily distracted, where other cares and concerns just crowd in, and I have a hard job just trying to kind of keep my focus and just stay a Christian, let alone a pastor or anything else. There's this, this struggle that goes on. And in fact, in those times, I, I've even found myself crying out to God because something really extraordinary has happened. At least I've thought it's extraordinary. I've found it to be very common, but I've found it to be extraordinary in my experience. And I've stalled. I've actually stalled. You know what that means, don't you? You, know, you start the car in the morning, you think you're moving off, and suddenly oof, you kind of miss the gear. You stall at the traffic lights. It's, it happens to all of us. And you think you're moving forward, but suddenly it all stops, and a moment of confusion, and you're struggling to feel the ignition keys, and there's somebody honking in the car behind, and it's all very frustrating, but you've stalled. Actually, on this wonderful new website that we, we've had, I just think it looks fantastic. If you haven't already registered, you need to register and go onto the members site 
But there's video clips, there's the video clips that you've come and asked me about. Can we get hold of that? And where can I get my hands on that? They're all on the new website. It's wonderful in the membership section. You know that website runs to nearly 100 pages. It's extraordinary. It's an, a fantastic piece of work by our technical team. All credit to my wife, Fliss, and Samuel, uh, our worship pastor. They've all been involved in it. In fact, many people have been involved in it. There's a few teething problems at the moment in little areas, so apologize if you've had that. But, but if you go into the members section, you will find that there is a... You, you can get your hands on the Reveal study. Now, a year ago, we did a massive online study and we were asking the question is simply, is it working? Are we making disciples? Or are we just showing up and doing church? The key question was, are we making disciples? And it makes fantastic reading. I was a bit nervous about it. I was a bit apprehensive. There's even a section in there about how's your senior pastor doing? And I was like, Ugh, you know. But in the revealed study, it said that 11% of us, 11%, felt that they had stalled. 89% of you are doing great, and, and praise God for that, but 11% had stalled. And I, you know, I have to ask myself, when I'm in that place myself, but I have to ask, you know, what can we do about that? How can we help you? And there are actually five reasons given in that re report why you think, those of you who said that you'd stalled, had actually stalled, and you might, like to check those out. I'm not going to tell you. You have to look at it yourself. But when we are stalled, there may be a number of reasons. You know, we have to ask ourselves, why? What's going on there? Why have we stalled? Why, why, was, why is something that used to be my joy, my magnificent obsession, why is it routine now? Why is it, why do I feel it such a chore? Why, why have I hit this glass ceiling? You know, you... You will use other terms, I'm sure, but I think, I think we know what I'm talking about here. Well, as Tim Keller will tell us, and we're going to watch his video in just a moment. Actually, it might be something to do with our epithumiae. You knew that, of course. Might be your epithumiae. Actually, epithumiae is a Greek word, and it means inordinate desires. Inordinate desires. If you want to do a bit of homework this afternoon, go and read Romans 1 or Galatians 4, and it'll talk about these epithumiae, these inordinate desires. The Old Testament has a different term for it. It calls them idols. These things, these illicit things, these articles of affection, these things that we have in our life that seem innocent, seem innocuous, seem a little bit of fun, however, but actually subtly, subversively, they undermine our relationship with the living God. And that old problem of idolatry, which is so foreign to our thinking these days, actually morphed into inordinate desires of which the New Testament speaks in great detail and great length as something that wars against our passion for Jesus. And as I read about it, as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Epithumiae 
are alive and well in the 21st century in Hertfordshire, in our lives. With that, I'm going to hand over for our little DVD presentation, and I'll round up with a few positive and uplifting thoughts. But let's run the DVD now, guys. Thank you. A passion for Jesus. A passion for Jesus. I love that Thomas Chalmers quote. Just, I think I've got a little heading there. The expulsive power of a new affection. You can't just say, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better, I'm not going to do this, I'm not, you know, that's a start, but actually, we need something, an overriding, a, a magnificent obsession, something that's going to undo that and, and press on and push us on in a new direction, a passion for Jesus. And we have, it's, you know, there is good reason to have a passion for Jesus for example, Jesus has paid the price on our head. Thank you, I think I have a heading. Jesus has paid the price on our head. What do I mean by that? Well, there is a price to pay for, for our sin, and Jesus has paid that. But more than that, he's, he's put a price on our head. What do I mean by that? I, I've, I've mentioned before, occasionally I watch uh, Antiques Roadshow, and there may be two people that that come presenting their antiques, something they found in the loft. And one may be an oil painting and the, the appraiser looks at it and says, yeah, well, it, it, you know, it's very nice. Um, who did it? My granny did it. Well, yeah, she's very talented, isn't she? How much do you think it's worth? Oh, I don't know, 70 or 80 pounds. It's very, very nice. I, I'd love to have that in my hall. And then the next person comes along and they have an oil painting and the appraiser looks at that and says, my goodness, that is a lost Van Gogh. That is worth probably 12 million pounds on a good day. 80 pounds for one, 12 million for the other. Both canvas, both oils, both the same size. But one is worth so much more for a whole host of reasons. You see, many of our idols, many of the things that we pursue, particularly for us guys in terms of career, but women, it can be family, it can be children, it can be a number of things. Many of the things that we pursue, we pursue because they give us worth. They make us feel good about ourselves. They make us feel better. But Jesus has put a value on us. He looked at you and he looked at me. And he said, my goodness, what a piece of work. But he didn't say, hmm, 80 quid on a good day. We're in the Van Gogh League. Because the Son of God thought you were worth laying down his life for. God himself laid down his life because you are worth it. And yet we chase after this career or driving that car or, or, or chase after you know, trying to, you know, saying to our kids, you, come on, you excel. I'll get vicarious pressure but from your achievements. Push, 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 push. We, we get worth through these things. These things that are 
idols to us. They become snares to us. They enslave us. But Jesus has paid the price on our head and put a price on our head. Jesus has lifted our head. What do I mean by that? Jesus has dealt with shame. One of the, one of the great tragedies of our age and many ages before is that so many of us feel ashamed. So many of us feel a need to be forgiven for some, something we've done in the past or something we imagine we've done in the past. Sometimes it's things that others have done. Sometimes it's just judgments we have about ourselves. Nobody's actually done anything, but we just feel rubbish. We just say, I'm worthless. I feel ashamed. I forget who it was, but a psychologist, psychiatrist was asked, what did he think was the one thing that, that might help many of his, was there one thing that he could say that would help his patients make progress? And he said, yeah, being forgiven, forgiving others, forgiving themselves. Not a Christian. The whole issue of forgiveness. Jesus has lifted up our head. We, we don't stand in God's presence like sn sniveling wrecks. He steps down, he puts his hand under our chin and raises our head and he calls us son. He calls us daughter. We'll never get that kind of affirmation from our earthly passions, our idols, but God himself will do that. And finally, and perhaps the music team, worship team can come up just to so I make my last point here. Jesus has put a crown on our head. <laughs> I remember almost to the day, a few months after the Lord really began to move in Phyllis and my life in the 70s. A few months later, I was reading through the book of Ephesians and I read this little passage, this verse in Ephesians chapter two, verse six, which completely undid me. And in it, it says that God has raised us up with him and placed us on his throne beside him. So we're not just like a crowd of extras in some MGM, Metro Goldwyn May movie. We have a central part to play in all of this. The people of God. And the way it works is that in the age to come, the, the created beings, all that are seen and unseen, will see us on the throne with God, and we will bring him glory because they will say, when they see us seated, crowned in his presence, they will not say, oh, Chris Lane, isn't he wonderful? They'll say, what a God. What a profundity of mercy. What an extravagance of love. What a generosity of kindness. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. We look to the things of this world. We look to our inordinate and compulsive passions to, to make us feel like little princes strutting around, feeling better than others, comparing ourselves. These things ensnare us. But a passion for Jesus will drive these things out. A passion for Jesus, for he has paid.
paid for our sins, a passion for Jesus because he has lifted our head, and a passion for Jesus because he has crowned us. These things, these things are at the very heart of a gospel of grace, very heart of the freedom that we celebrate together. Would you please stand? Heavenly Father, we confess that we are like, all too often we're like some scatty, scatty cocker spaniel in the park chasing after a rabbit, then chasing a bird, then chasing after the kids, then chasing after a bull. We chase after this, we chase after that, and just exhaust ourselves. Lord, may we become fixated on the person of Jesus. May we cultivate a passion for Jesus. May he become our magnificent obsession. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.